And so the way we do it is we'll say, all right, here's why a vegan diet or a plant-based diet, whatever word you want to use, is good. And let's take a week. Let's not start the diet today. And during this week, let's think of the foods that you might like to have for breakfast or lunch or dinner that have no animal products in them. They come back at seven days later, they got their whole list. Now the doctor says, let's eat those foods that you picked out for the next 21 days, three weeks, all vegan all the time, but it's the foods you like. Hey, okay, easy. I can do anything for three weeks and these are the foods I like. So they eat it and three weeks goes by physically they are changing. They're losing weight. They're feeling better. If they got diabetes, their blood sugar is starting to fall. Their digestion is finally sorted out. But the other thing is their attitudes about foods and their taste for foods are changing too. They didn't expect that because you didn't try to talk them out of skepticism. After three weeks, they just think, can I do this for another week? Of course. You couldn't pay them to go back and have a cheeseburger. That's Dr. Neil Bernard. And this this is the Proof Podcast. Hey friends, hope you're doing well. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. For new listeners, welcome. What have you been doing all this time? (laughs) Just kidding. Hope you enjoy the show. My name is Simon Hill. I'm your host, qualified physiotherapist, and currently finishing my master's in nutrition. I also created plantproof.com and at plant underscore proof on Instagram to provide free information to help people navigate through the science and just feel confident adding more plants to their plate. On this show, I sit down with folks from all walks of life, experts in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, thriving athletes, business owners, and more. And The idea is to bring you into the conversation. So it's like you're in the room with me right now. And together, we can learn new things, challenge our belief system, and ultimately become more conscious humans. In today's episode with Dr. Neil Barnard, we cover his journey into lifestyle medicine, type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, and much more. But before we dive into the episode, there are a few little things I would like to share, and I promise I won't keep you too long. I've been writing my book, which many of you know I am publishing with Penguin Publishers early 2020. It'll be sold globally, and I'm donating 100% of my revenue that I receive to charities which you guys choose. And while writing this book, I've been going back over and analyzing a lot of the nutritional research. In particular, taking a look at research that people with other views on nutrition refer to, particularly paleo and keto types of diets. Before I go into some science today, I want to firstly say, I want to make this really clear. I have so much respect for anyone that makes changes to their diet or lifestyle in general, with the aim of being a healthier version of themselves. That's that's what I'm all about. And to be honest, if you moved from the standard Western diet to a paleo or a keto diet, it's certainly a step in the right direction. I mean, a good paleo or keto diet at least doesn't have ultra-processed foods in it. So I think that's a great shift. My concern is that the quality science around disease avoidance and longevity in particular from an RCT or randomized controlled trial level and also an epidemiology level, which is study on populations, observational studies of populations, which we can watch over decades, 
it doesn't point towards either a paleo or a keto diet being this magic pill that it's made out to be. In fact, the science is so clear. From, from a top level, when you cut through the bad trials, studies that have been set up to produce favorable results for certain industries, etc., you see that the very best diets are predominantly or completely plant-based. Predominantly or completely plant-based. Diets like the original Mediterranean, the portfolio diet, the DASH diet, the blue zone diets, who on average get 70% of their calories from unrefined carbohydrates, or even the vegan diets eaten by the Seventh Adventists in Loma Linda, California. We have so much science to show that swapping saturated fat for polyunsaturated fat will reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease. We know trans fats are bad for cardiovascular health. We know dietary cholesterol, to a lesser extent, affects your cholesterol levels and and thus your cardiovascular risk. And beyond the macronutrient profiles, we also have other mechanisms to explain why animal products are associated with chronic diseases, things like nitrates found in processed meat, TMAO and carnitine in red meat, etc., and the list goes on. On the flip side, we know that people who consume more dietary fiber, which is only found in plants, have lower all-cause mortality and less risk of chronic disease. We know that plants contain an abundance of phytochemical and antioxidants, which are protective against various cancers. Combine all of this, and I've just scraped the surface there, combine all of this, take a 500-foot view and ask yourself, is it pretty clear that we should eat a predominantly plant-based diet or should we be removing a macronutrient like carbs from our diet and putting butter in our coffee to enter ketosis? The latter certainly sounds sexy and marketable, but it really goes against everything we know. Ketosis. This brings me to insulin resistance. For years, people blamed sugar for insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. Don't get me wrong, sugar can be involved in type 2 diabetes only from the point of view, though, that it contributes to calories and can contribute to a calorie surplus where someone can put on weight and being overweight is a risk factor for type 2 diabetes, but sugar itself is not responsible for type 2 diabetes. Let me quickly explain glucose metabolism. Glucose is another word for sugar. Glucose is our primary fuel source, and it comes from carbohydrates. When carbohydrates are digested, they're broken down into glucose molecules, which then enter the blood, so they can be transported around our body to our cells, mainly muscle and liver cells. In normal functioning people, the glucose can easily move into the cells from the blood. Insulin, a hormone, essentially acts as a key, and it unlocks the door, allowing the glucose to flow from the blood into the cell where it can be stored as glycogen or used for energy. In insulin resistant folks, this lock becomes jammed. So despite enough insulin, the door cannot be opened and glucose gets stuck in the blood. Person has poor glucose control and ends up diagnosed with type two diabetes. We all have a level of insulin resistance, which changes day to day based on what we eat, our exercise, stress, etc. It's just when we go further down that spectrum that we are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. So what actually causes that lock to get jammed? 
where it's got some good science to explain this. Intramyocellular fat, fat particles in the cell, which basically act like chewing gum, blocking up the lock so the insulin cannot open the door. We briefly talk about this in today's episode. Studies have shown that vegans have lower levels of intramyocellular fat, which is probably a result of a lower fat diet and a lower body mass index. And then further studies have shown that low-carb, high-fat diets increase insulin resistance. And in fact, this is something generally accepted by keto proponents. As you increase the fat in your diet, the locks get more and more jammed up. Keto proponents will say this is not an issue as you're not consuming many carbs. But that's assuming you want to be keto for life. Same goes for type 2 diabetics doing a keto diet. Sure, it helps your glucose control because essentially there is no glucose in the, in the diet and that's really just a band-aid solution. In fact, the insulin resistance is typically far worse in people who are consuming a high-fat, low-carb diet. And you've knocked out some of the most health-promoting food groups that you can eat, whole grains and legumes in particular. For me, that's treating the symptoms, type 2 diabetes, but it's not treating the person as a whole. We should be looking at holistic health. In the contrary, a low-fat, high, unrefined carbohydrate diet can reverse insulin resistance and it keeps these healthy food groups in the game. I've written about this in more detail in my book and and as I said, we do discuss intramyocellular fat and insulin resistance in this podcast. Anyway, science lesson done for today. Thanks for sitting through that. I hope that was helpful. I'm going to now make way for Dr. Neil Barnard. We caught up while he was recently in Australia for the Doctors for Nutrition conference. I hope you enjoy, folks, and I'll see you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. 
If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Dr. Neil Barnard, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you today. Yeah, it's awesome to be able to catch up in person to, to have you here in Melbourne for the Doctors for Nutrition Conference. Have you been to Australia or Melbourne before? I Yes, I have, it's, but it's great to be back. And what a fantastic conference. It's packed with lots of doctors and other clinicians who are eager to learn all about using food for health. And, and uh, it's just wonderful to see. And I just um, listened to your speech before you spoke for, what, an hour, hour and a half. It was a wonderful, incredible speech, as always. And I think many of the the listeners, definitely from my community, the majority of them would know of you and, and of your work. But I'm, I'm looking forward to delving in a little bit deeper, particularly into some of the clinical science that you have performed with your colleagues. I think it's it's worth me noting just to begin, how incredibly lucky I feel to have you in the room and on the podcast because it's quite rare to have someone who has contributed so much from a science point of view and you're, I guess, in an elite company with you know other doctors like Dr. Dean Ornish and Dr. Esselstein that have sort of paved the way for lifestyle medicine and, and placing more of an importance on preventative medicine and the role of nutrition. But listening to you speak today, it's also quite clear that you are also in the trenches and you roll up your sleeves and you're talking about the programs and you're talking about getting groups of 15 to 20 patients down and, you know, running education classes. So I like the fact that you're, you've got the science side, but you've also, you're, you're in there and you're getting the work done. Now, before we do dive into your science and we, and we sort of talk about the role that nutrition plays, what we should be eating more of, what we should be eating less of, why don't you share a little bit of your story, where you grew up, what you what your life was like as a kid, and how you wound up as a doctor in the first place. Yeah, I grew up in North Dakota, which is near the Canadian border. The town is Fargo, which is, I guess, famous for the movie. <laughs> and uh, Anyhow, um, I, I grew up on a very typical American diet, which is not that much different from a fairly typical Australian diet. Meat was part of every lunch and dinner and often part of breakfast too. And the year before I went to medical school, I had an, a job in the basement of a hospital where I was the autopsy assistant or the pathology assistant, I guess is what we would like to call it. And whenever anybody died in the hospital, I would help the pathologist examine the bodies. And 
One day there was a person who died in the hospital of a massive heart attack, probably from eating hospital food, but that's another story. <laughs> anyway, the pathologist came in to do the autopsy and determine the cause of death. And he removed a big chunk of ribs off the chest. And you don't do this with great delicacy. You cut through the ribs on one side and the other side, and you pull it off the chest. And that exposed the heart. And he showed me what atherosclerosis looks like. You, you slice open a coronary artery, and it's filled with what looks like chewing gum, except that it's hard as a rock. And, and this is atherosclerosis. And the same thing was there in the carotid arteries going to the brain and in the artery to the legs. And it was very impressive. And he was telling me how this is comes from eating bacon and eggs and whatever. So at the end of the exam, he left the room and I had to clean everything up. So I put the ribs back in the chest and sewed up the skin and cleaned up. And when I was done, I went up to the cafeteria and they were serving ribs for lunch that day. And I have to tell you, it looked like a dead body and it smelled like the dead body. And I didn't become a vegetarian on the spot, but I was not going to eat that. And as time went on, I just started associating meet with with death and with with disease and and I don't know if you'd call that ethical or health or whatever it was but it or gustatory or something but anyhow I just uh, started to put two and two together become more conscious yeah exactly and, and and all the other pieces that started to make sense to me too the environmental issues were coming to the fore and the animal issues I grew up in North Dakota as I mentioned my father grew up in the cattle business and he he left it and went to medical school himself but but I drove cattle to slaughter myself and I, I hunted and all these things. I started to think that's kind of creepy in, in retrospect. So, uh, but, but at the time it was, it was just normal, right? Completely. Okay. And so you're, you're at that part of your career when you were exposed to that and you know, you, you saw atherosclerosis firsthand. Was there a lot of science out there and, and, and people to be able to explain to you exactly the cause from a, from a diet point of view? At that point, there, there was a certain amount of understanding of the effects of fat and cholesterol. But at that time, the whole idea was, all right, um, you can modestly reduce your risk of a heart attack by switching from beef to chicken. That, uh, and that was at the same time when people were saying, you should cut down on smoking. In other words, they weren't talking about quitting and they weren't talking about getting the meat out of your diet. It was these sort of little eensy baby steps of switch from beef to chicken or eat more fish. Or, Is that that whole everything in moderation kind of thing? Yeah, on? exactly. And let me say that's a terrible idea. Yeah. You know, I mean, moderation, everything in moderation is, is a good thought for healthy things. So let's say your daughter likes to play the violin and, and that's good. And she plays it. And after about eight hours, you say, you know, why don't you, you might want to eat dinner or study or we'll get outside, go outside, do yeah. something else. Uh, if you like broccoli, that's great. But if you eat nothing but broccoli, you know, you need it in moderation. But moderation does not apply to heroin or to, to, to things yeah. that are dangerous. It's almost you. a throwaway line that we use to reinforce a negative. Right. Behavior, right. right. So, so moderation, all things in moderation, that applies to healthy things. That doesn't apply to things that are going to kill you. And we know that we now know, we didn't know then, but we know now that animal products clearly link to heart disease, certain forms of cancer, increased risk of diabetes, all kinds of stuff. And to moderate those is to welcome them diseases into your life. Okay. So talk to me how your career then progressed from then. And, and also personally, the, the foods that you were eating, at what point did you arrive at this place where you thought, okay, not only for me, but also for my patients and, and the broader society, we should be eating a diet without animal products. I, I went to medical school at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and I did my residency there. And my residency was in psychiatry. 
I did a regular internship, medical type internship, but then I did psychiatry because that's that's all I was interested in at the time is how the brain works. And I found this fascinating and how, and how brain function gets derailed. And so I, I moved to New York after residency and I was running a psychiatric ward during the day at St. Vincent's Hospital. And after hours, I had a, a medical psychiatric practice. Um, by that, I mean, uh, I was the doctor they would call for patients with medical conditions that were complicated by psychiatric problems. For example, I had a patient with HIV that went to the brain and uh, caused uh, psychiatric manifestations of this physical illness. Or somebody in the intensive care unit who was becoming um, delusional or something like that. In the course of this work, I started to feel like we don't do anything. (laughs) We don't do anything in medical practice to prevent these, these problems. So the person I'm seeing with heart disease and depression. Nobody intervened until they came into the emergency room door with a heart attack. Um, And I thought that's got to change. And so I started thinking at that point that we needed to change medical practice in a more global way where we're thinking about prevention. And we were already, at that point, we were already pretty good with cigarettes and a non-smoking message, but not anywhere where we needed to be with food. Was it like now we hear chronic disease, chronic disease, these are leading causes of death. Back then, was was there an appreciation for chronic disease? Because it kind of sounds like through Western medicine, almost like an acute care philosophy was thrown at chronic diseases. You know, I I, I, I think there's something to what you're saying that that much earlier, you know, a century ago, the causes of death were infections. So somebody would get pneumonia or some other bacterial infection. And so the whole idea was, okay, something has arrived. It's an acute threat. Antibiotics came along and we knock out that threat and you're fine. That same model of just some something that requires an acute focus has stayed there despite the fact that the conditions that threaten us now are not bacterial. For the most part, they're related to what you're eating. And so a person comes in with diabetes, they've got they've got high cholesterol or high blood pressure or something like that. These are, as you're saying, chronic illnesses, and they are not going to be dealt with very well by just throwing a drug at them. Now, drugs have effects on all of these, but they don't get to the cause. If a person has a high cholesterol it's not because they have a Lipitor deficiency. And if a person has type 2 diabetes, that's not a metformin deficiency. And if they've got high blood pressure, it's not a deficiency of lisinopril or some other blood pressure drug. It's caused mostly by what they're eating. And that's what up until recently doctors were just fumbling with. Um, But that's the cause of the disease. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, 
before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Let's let's use some of your clinical research on on diabetes and, and insulin resistance, perhaps, to walk the listeners through what a change in diet can do from a disease point of view. Along the way, I guess we'll be covering other chronic diseases, and we can talk about um, what certain foods do to provoke disease and what certain foods do to help prevent it. In two thousand three, we were funded by the National Institutes of Health to do a head to head trial of a low-fat vegan diet. And when I say vegan diet, I mean no animal products. That was the experimental diet and the control diet that we were comparing it against was a, a conventional diabetes diet that was limiting calories to help people lose weight and not overdoing it with carbohydrate, the standard recommendations. So the idea was that would the plant-based diet be better? And the reason that NIH gave us money to do this was because we had already done some pilot studies suggesting that a vegan diet looked really good. It would help people lose weight and in, in a rather small group of people with diabetes, it seemed promising. So we put this together and one of the first people who came into the study was a man named Vance. And Vance had had diabetes for, I think it was eight years or he's so. A, he's a type two diabetes. Type two, exactly. He had had diabetes for a number of years and he said, you know, when he was diagnosed with it, it meant you're going to lose a leg or you're going to go blind or something like that because his he had diabetes all up and down his family tree. Vance's father was dead by age 30. Vance was 31 when he got his diagnosis. He was in his late 30s when he came to see us. He was randomly assigned to, to one group. He got the plant-based group, the diet group, the vegan diet group. And after about three weeks, he said, you know, I thought this was supposed to be hard. <laughs> I, said, I said, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, 
up until that point, he had he had, had diabetes counseling where you had to keep track of all your carbohydrate grams and write it all down. And you had to cut calories to lose weight and all this stuff. And he said, you know, you're telling me just if I have spaghetti, don't put meat sauce. I'll use tomato sauce. Like, how hard is that? Or if I make chili, it's not meat chili, it's bean chili. This This is so simple. But over a year, he lost 60 pounds. So what would that be in kilograms? You know, maybe 20 some kilograms or whatever. His blood sugar control got better and better and better and better. And his outside doctor stopped his medications, all his diabetes medications. And after a year, when we did our final blood tests, on no medication at all, his blood sugar control was totally normal. It was like a 12-year-old kid. And I have to say, when I, when I saw these numbers, I really had to think long and hard. I thought, can I tell him that he does not have diabetes? Because here's a man who had diabetes. He walked in with it. That's the whole reason he was there. And the blood tests show it was gone. And traditionally before that, when it's life sentence, you know, it's thought, I guess, from health practitioners and patients, once you have type 2 diabetes, you've got it for life. Exactly. And in fact, if you would, if you would say you don't have diabetes anymore. That was like, you know, or diabetes could be reversible. That was like fighting words. And I thought long and hard before I could tell him. I know it sounds silly today because we've gotten quite used to diabetes going away. It, it, what really saved us was surgeons. Surgeons would take very, very heavy people who had diabetes. And with bariatric surgery, which I'm, I'm not recommending, but, but my point is that sometimes after bariatric surgery, people lose so much weight, their diabetes will go away. So we just got used to that. And and with our approach, using a completely healthy plant-based diet, very low in fat, healthy foods, diabetes goes away all the time now. But, but back then, this was just an amazing thing. And if you are that patient and you're thinking about, I got my diagnosis and it's the most dispiriting thing to see what happened to your father or your mother or your grandfather who then went blind and died of a heart attack at age 62. You know, years before, their lifespan is cut short. You think, this is me. And then you make some diet changes that aren't that hard. And you like it. And and your diabetes goes away. I mean, don't get me wrong. If a person's had this condition for a long period of time and their pancreas has been trying and struggling to make extra insulin to make up for it, and it's worn out, their diabetes may not go away at that point. They'll still improve and you can prevent a lot of the complications. But if you get to a patient early enough, you can make this disease just flat out go away. The other thing to be aware of is that unhealthy foods are waiting around the corner. So you could get it back if you go back to an unhealthy diet. And that's always a risk because food is sort of an addictive substance. And, And in the same way as an alcoholic, after 10 years of sobriety, could be at risk of maybe falling off the wagon. That temptation's there. That temptation can be there. Um, although I have to say for a lot of our patients, I mean, your diabetes improves. You you lose weight. Your digestive problems have sorted out. Your cholesterol's gone. You're not on all those darn pills That's that you didn't powerful. want to take. It's powerful. You want to stick with that and you think, you couldn't pay me to eat a pork chop at that yeah. point. Um, it's like a smoker. If you were a smoker and you conquered it, you just don't want to go back. So food, I like that too. Okay, so a, a few things that I, I heard just then about Vance's story that I think would be interesting to delve into a little deeper. One, you spoke about the fact that he was like, this is, this is easy. And obviously adherence is a key to any, any form of lifestyle intervention where a patient needs to go away and do something in their own lifestyle to get to reap the benefit. Why do you think on the low-fat vegan diet, the patient doesn't need to count their calories? 
Um, because the calories are counted for them, so to speak. I know that's a funny way of putting it. The point of counting calories is to encourage, to help a patient eat less. So the dietitian sits down with them and they, they record how much they're eating and they, they'll say, well, you're really overweight. So they usually cut about a quarter of their diet off, <laughs> which is a lot. And the patient is told to stick to this low calorie diet which by about Wednesday, they are ready to quit. They want to eat the sofa. They've, they've just had it. Um, okay. Instead, you go on a plant-based diet. Everything you're eating is from a plant. All plants have fiber in their natural state. Fiber has no calories. So it sort of just dilutes the calories you're eating. So you think you're eating a lot, but you're not eating as much as you were before because their foods are high in fiber and they're naturally low in fat. And I think the important thing there is... I mean, given in 2019, there's so many now trendy vegan products coming out in the market, right, which which might uh, look healthy in the wrappers and whatnot. But what you're talking about is very much eating whole foods like the PCRM plate, like the Daily Dozen, Michael Greger's Daily Dozen, right? There are products out like vegan ice cream and vegan, vegan meat substitutes, and those are useful as transitional foods for a person who's eating regular ice cream. If they go to a vegan ice cream, that's that's a good switch for them. And if they're eating hamburger and they go to a veggie burger, that's a good switch for them too. But what you often want to do is start reading the labels, start picking the ones that don't have a lot of grease in them. And and as time goes on, you're you're getting towards simpler and healthier foods and your tastes are going in this direction too. It's funny, you end up eating a, a diet that's really a whole lot healthier than it was before because the foods are simpler. Okay. So talk me, talk me through, I guess, the specifics around the etiology of type two diabetes, which I guess, you know, similar sorts of foods causing that, that are causing atherosclerosis. But yeah, what in the standard Western diet specifically is causing it? Things like fat, sugar, can you provide an, an overview snippet of that? Yes. It is understandable that people would think that diabetes was caused by sugar or by soda. Because after all, in diabetes, you have a high blood sugar. And if you eat sugary foods or drink sodas, your blood sugar will rise. So people kind of thought that was the cause. That's not correct. The cause of it is the buildup of microscopic fat particles inside muscle cells and liver cells. And we know this to be the case because you can see it. You can bring in a 15-year-old kid, put them in uh, an MR scanning device, a magnetic resonance spectroscopy. You look in their muscles, non-invasively. You look in their liver and you see the buildup of this tiny, these microscopic fat particles inside the cells. That fat stops insulin from being able to take sugar out of the blood and put it into the cell. Simply put, if the cell is filled with fat particles, the sugar can't get in anymore, so it builds in, into the blood. And it's, it's because the fat makes insulin not work. Insulin is a hormone made in the pancreas that arrives at the surface of your muscle cell and like a key in a lock, it just opens up the cell to the sugar going in, to the glucose going in, getting out of the blood into the cell. And if you eat a lot of fatty junk, chicken, beef, salmon, greasy French fries, that fat gets into the cell and insulin can't work anymore. That's the cause of diabetes. It starts with insulin resistance and the pancreas tries to make more and more and more insulin to try to overcome it. It can't keep up. So the blood sugar then starts to rise. And at that point, if you drink a soda, you find your blood sugar does rise. And so, insulin resistant. Because you're insulin resistant. Your cells are all full of fat. The sugar can't get in. So people said, ah, the soda was the problem. 
that's not where it started. It started with the buildup of fat. And if you just stop drinking soda, your diabetes is not going to go away because the cause of it is the buildup of, of fat particles. We call it intramyocellular lipid in the muscles and hepatocellular lipid in the, the liver. And I need to change my diet to get rid of that. And the way you do it is if your diet is, has no animal products in it, then there's zero animal fat. And if I keep vegetable oils low, so I'm not eating a lot of fried junk. And does that include coconut oil, olive oil, all that sort of stuff? Yes. And let me say a special word of condemnation for coconut oil. It's very fashionable, but it's as bad as butter, I have to say. Shine your shoes with it. You know, don't eat it. But yeah, those, those fats get into the cells. Well, why do you think coconut oil has become trendy despite the science um, clearly showing that, you know, saturated fats are something that we should limit? Because there are companies that have trees in that make coconuts and they figured out they can make some money off of it if they extract the oil and sell it to you. And, you and look, I guess it tastes good in, in recipes. Well, it has, it, it has that buttery mouthfeel. It's, it's, you know, uh, corn oil is, is liquid, but coconut oil is solid uh, at room temperature and it's solid like butter. And that's, that's why people like it. And it has a very long shelf life as a result of that too. But your shelf life is not longer if you eat it because it, the saturated fat content is what raises your cholesterol and it will raise your cholesterol. And peop, some people have said, no, no, it doesn't. If you look at the research studies that have been carefully done, it clearly raises cholesterol levels. And it probably is associated with, with all the other problems that butter has and cheese and so forth. I, I, would, I would avoid it completely. So it's, it's same with palm oil, by the way, while we're beating up on these yeah. things. Yeah. Um, if you look at the labels of a cookie, or for that matter, it could be some peanut butter where they've added palm oil or coconut oil. Look at the saturated fat grams. They're high. And uh, th those are really not foods intended for human consumption. Okay. So when you, two questions here. One, the intramyocellular fat that is is purely from dietary fat. It's not, it, it's not from an excess of other calories that are converted to fat. That can happen if you overdo it with other things that you can make fat out of it theoretically, but no, it's mostly dietary. If you think about it this way, let's say uh, I'm going to eat bread and you eat a slice of bread. Your, your body does not turn that bread into fat. The carbohydrate, the starch in the bread, your body will take that and it breaks apart. The, the carbohydrate molecule is like a string of beads. If you could look at it under a powerful microscope, it's a whole bunch of glucose molecules all linked together. And your digestion breaks them apart. And that glucose goes into your muscle cells and your liver cells. It goes to your brain. It goes to the other parts of your body and it powers them. It doesn't go to fat. Now, let's say I eat five slices of bread. That's more than the body needs. Your body breaks apart the, the carbohydrate. The glucose molecules come apart. And some of it goes to your muscle, some to your brain, some to your liver, some to the other parts of the body. And there's, there's glucose left over. So your body at that point sticks it in your liver and makes what's called glycogen, which is stored carbohydrate. And it also does the same in your muscle cells. So this is why marathon runners carbo load in the days leading up to a race because they want a lot of glycogen. That's not fat, that's stored carbohydrate in a special molecule that your body makes. Okay, I'm convinced I can get fat from eating bread. So I'm gonna eat three loaves of bread today. Well, at that point, um, it is too much. And you're using all that your brain and body tissues can use and your glycogen stores are all filled up. Your body will make fat out of it. But even doing that to make 
glucose in the fat is a little bit of a challenge for the body and about a quarter of the calories are just lost Thin. in the process of making it. So you can get fat from eating carbohydrate, but it's hard. The way that people get fat from eating carbohydrate is they have a cookie or a piece of cake and they called it carbohydrate. But if you look at the recipe, there's a stick of butter that went into, <laughs> into making it. And that's the fattening part because butter is already fat. You don't have to break it down. It goes straight into your thighs. Okay, so the low-fat vegan diet that you've used in your cl clinical trials that you've, you were talking about before and with Vance, is that a similar type of diet to like what Dr. Esselstein used when he, was, when he did reverse atherosclerosis and heart disease? Yeah, it is. You want to get away from animal products. You want to keep away from the added oils. There are natural traces of oils in, in, in everything. I mean, even broccoli is maybe... Seven or eight percent of its calories come from natural plant oils, um, and those are good and those are, are necessary. Um, and so, yes, it's very similar. Now, everybody will interpret this in their own way. When Caldwell Esselstyn has done his incredible groundbreaking work with people who've had quite advanced heart disease, he would have get rid of the animal products, keep the oils out, and also he's really uh, vigorous with super healthy foods, good, lots of green vegetables in your diet. I think that's a good. Uh, that's like six times a day, right? Lots, as much as yeah, you can, yeah. can have. And we, we haven't done that, you say, in our diabetes studies, but you know, green vegetables are good and they're healthy. And I think he's right to emphasize them. Okay. And to quantify what low fat means, right? Um, I'm thinking you're mainly talking about saturated fat, but is, there, is, it, is it just saturated fat that you are talking about, firstly? And secondly, what as a percentage of calories, I know that we're not talking about people counting calories, but if you were to look at someone's diet, what do you think the fat component would take take up in terms of calories? I don't think people should count. And to your average person, it doesn't mean anything, but to a scientist or a physician, it would. if you, if you had no animal products in your diet and you didn't add oils, it would end up at about 10% of your calories would be from fat. And you compare that to your average Australian is having maybe... You know, it varies a lot, but maybe between 30 or 35% is where they are now. So it's a big reduction, but it's not zero because you, you need a certain amount of natural fats, but you don't need to add any. So I was mentioning the fats that are in, in green vegetables. There's almost no saturated fat at all in plant foods. And they, have the, they do have the fats that you do need, which this will not be on the test, but they're called <laughs> alpha-linolenic acid and linoleic acid. Those are the, the essential fats that your body actually does need, and, and they're in plants. Tell me, why, why do some people appear to be less predisposed to developing type 2 diabetes? There are plenty of people who are overweight, who have a standard American-Australian diet, whatever you want to call it, a Western diet that's rich in, in saturated fats, animal, animal products, but they don't develop type 2 diabetes, what's happening in their body that's different? Well, I should say that it's, they may or may not get diabetes, but if they don't get diabetes, that doesn't mean that their diet was safe for them because a smoker may not get lung cancer, but the smoker might get bladder cancer because the carcinogens you inhale go out through the urine. So a person eating a meaty, cheesy diet, and in, in fact, the very diet that I grew up on and that most people grew up on, if you continue that lifelong, you may or you may not get diabetes, but your chances of having heart disease and atherosclerosis are extremely high. You may well have high blood pressure and your chances are you're going to gain weight. 67% of Australian adults are overweight or obese now. So just so this pathology happened, like things are happening. Yeah. Diabetes is simply the pathology in the muscle and liver cells. 
So if the fat builds up there and you get insulin resistant, and if your if your pancreas can make more insulin and counteract it, then you're not going to get diabetes. But if it can't keep up, then you do get it. Um, a lot of people, maybe 30% of the people walking on the sidewalk outside this building have either diabetes or prediabetes. Many of them don't know it. Wow. Uh, yes, about a third. And they can be 16 years old and they're headed toward diabetes. Uh, it won't manifest yet, but but we can, through testing, see the buildup of fat inside their muscle and liver cells. Uh, it's affecting their cellular metabolism. Their ability to handle glucose is already impaired. And it has nothing to do with all the things that they think. Oh, it's my soda. It's my this. It's my that. It's really the cheese sandwich that they had and the meat causing the fat buildup inside their cells. And when you when you do get this insulin resistance and eventually get type 2 diabetes, what's what's the prognosis like if you didn't make any changes people they they're dying of other complications cardiovascular complications what what's the outlook like for the average person you don't want this disease um mortality is such that the the lifespan of a person with type 2 diabetes is about 10 to 15 years shorter than everybody else and along the way what comes with it uh, it's the number one risk factor for loss of vision blindness amputation, which starts with a toe and then a foot. And then, you know, I don't want to be overly dramatic about it, but it's a creepy disease. Why do people lose their kidney function and they end up on dialysis? Diabetes. Diabetes and hypertension are far and away the causes of that. And those are are caused by diet. Um, So the prognosis is terrible. However, if a person has this and they they make a diet change, I don't care how long you've had diabetes. If you follow a completely plant-based diet, keep the oils out, the diabetes can either go away or if it doesn't go away, your risk of complications can go. There is no reason why you would have to have these complications. And I'm talking about a person who might already have atherosclerosis. They might already have heart disease. They might already have had a heart attack. If they go on a plant-based diet and eat healthy, simple foods and keep the oils really low and, and, and really follow it, the body can heal. The arteries can open up again to a degree. If your heart muscle has been killed, a portion of the heart muscle has been killed by heart attack, that's not going to come back. But, but there's no reason why you have to have a second heart attack. There's no reason why your life has to be shortened. You can have a person whose kidneys have been damaged by this and they are a couple of steps away from dialysis. Stop that scenario. Change your diet in a big way and you can preserve the kidney function that you have left. And from that point on, you can live more or less a normal life. So tell me, and I think this is probably a common question that you get, a lot of the recommendations from diabetes associations or experts traditionally has been around a low-carbohydrate diet. Why are they recommending that when what you're saying is there's science actually out there around reversing type 2 diabetes with a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet, which is rich in carbohydrates? What you're not proposing, but what you've shown is against the grain, excuse the pun, to, I guess, that standard type of uh, protocol. Why is that happening and why is that recommendation still out there? Well, the the traditional recommendations weren't really low carbohydrate. What they were is controlled carbohydrate. Um, In fact, the the goals were very modest. Um, I'm talking back the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s. (laughs) <laughs> even even more recently than that. The idea was you're on insulin 
and insulin will drive your blood sugar down. So you need to eat a certain amount of carbohydrate to, to provide sugar so that you can get in balance with your medications. And people were kind of eating for their, for their medicine. And the diet was balanced to keep them from running too high or too low in blood sugar. So it wasn't supposed to be low carbohydrate, but it was supposed to be controlled. So you never had too much carbohydrate in, the, in a day. And throughout the week, it was kind of spread out. Now, the, the low carbohydrate movement comes up every now and then with Atkins and South Beach and ketogenic diets. And there, the idea is get all the carbohydrate out of your diet because that'll release sugar into the blood. And that's more um, stringent than the more traditional diabetes diets. And I have to say, it's, in my view, more ill-advised. And I would not go on a ketogenic diet. I, th I think there's, a, frankly, a big mistake with very few exceptions. And the exception is ketogenic diets do seem to have benefit for children who have intractable seizures. The, the ketones will kind of poison the brain in a way that these kids who have no other treatment, it seems to help them. The risk, of course, is that you're going to give them massive atherosclerosis. So researchers are studying how to do a ketogenic diet vegan. And it means you have a very high fiber diet and it's lots of uh, plant proteins without the animal products. But, uh, but that's, that, I mean, these are rare conditions uh, for your average person trying to lose weight. I would never go to a keto diet. Well, it sounds like, I mean, going back to your original mechanism that you're talking about, insulin resistance and intramycellular fat on a ketogenic diet, it would seem to me that you're only going to make that worse. Yeah. And now you, because on a ketogenic diet, because the whole idea is we are going to have no carbohydrate or almost none. And so there's no starch to release sugars into the blood. And so your blood sugar will fall. And that's true. But if you, if you put introduced carbohydrates back into their diet, how would they? The, the, the minute you have an apple, your blood sugar goes through the roof because, because you've got, you haven't addressed the cause of the problem, which is the buildup of fat inside your cells. So as long as a person follows it strictly, their blood sugar won't rise too much, but their risk of atherosclerosis can rise. About one in three ketogenic dieters has a, a rise in their LDL, the bad cholesterol. That's shocking. And if you look at these people over the long term, we have mortality figures, and it's much worse on ketogenic diets than it is on any other kind of approach. There is zero reason for promoting this diet other than it's a fad. And it, it comes with, a, I guess, a commercial attractiveness for- Well, it's got four letter, a four-letter name, you know, people yeah, <laughs> love yeah. things like that. <laughs> now, something else I think uh, would be interesting, I guess, to discuss is- we're talking about a, a vegan diet. How does how does a vegetarian diet compare to the standard uh, American or Western diet when we're talking about type two diabetes and um, cardiovascular disease? And how does it compare also to a vegan diet? Well, a vegetarian diet really just means you're not eating meat. So typically, that would mean you're not having beef or chicken or fish or pork or so forth. And some vegetarians will eat eggs and dairy products and, and some will not. Some have a vegan diet that's free of all animal products. And if a person goes to a vegetarian diet, that's a step in the right direction. That's a good thing. To get away from meat is great. If, however, they are making up for the meat with lots of cheese and they're having lots of cheese and eggs, then they may find that they're not losing weight and they're not really getting healthier. Cheese is 70% fat. Not, and most, wow. of that, most of that fat is saturated fat. Once a person makes another step and they get the cheese out of the diet and get the eggs out, that's when the weight control really kicks in in a good way. That's when we're going to really tackle the diabetes and cholesterol problems. And what's the main problem with the, with the eggs? There's, there's two parts of the egg that we're concerned about. 
you know, the, the yolk and the white. Um, I guess the shell's okay. Um, the yolk of, uh, of an egg is the biggest single source of cholesterol in the diet by far. The, in, in one egg has the cholesterol of an eight ounce steak. And the, the white is just this glob of, of, of chicken protein, which you don't need. I mean, you, you, there's plenty of protein in a plant-based diet. You, you don't have any requirement for getting protein from an animal at all. And if you think about it, an egg, an egg has all the elements of a chick at the time that it's laid. You know, it, it's not calling out for room service. That what's in that yolk and that, and that white is going to all rearrange to make feathers and bones and feet and eyes and a liver. And so that's why it's, the egg has this boatload of cholesterol in it because it's going to make a chick that's going to peck, peck out uh, of, the, of, the, of the shell a little bit later. When a person eats an egg, it raises their blood cholesterol level and I would avoid it. Okay, you mentioned protein just then. And I'm assuming that's a common question that you probably get clinically when you're encouraging patients to make uh, a change to, the, to their diet. How do you explain that to them in terms of recommendations for, I guess, the, the amount of protein that we need being less than, than what we may assume, where they would find it on a plant-based diet? And what are some of the other uh, major sort of nutrient-type questions that you would get? Yeah. Uh, protein is sort of question number one, because people imagine if I don't eat meat, where will I get protein? And on their plate, if they have meat here and then they have vegetables here and maybe a starch, they think the meat has protein, the vegetables have vitamins, and the potato has carbohydrate for energy or something like that. The fact of the matter is that there's protein in the vegetables too. And there's protein in the potatoes or the rice or whatever they're thinking of as a starch, such that if you took the meat off the plate completely, you would still get more than enough protein. The U.S. government and the Australian government is similar, would say that the average person needs maybe roughly 50 grams of protein a day. The, the actual figure for a woman is 46 and for a man it's 56, but it depends a little bit on how active you are and how your size and that kind of stuff. So how do I get 46 grams of protein if I'm a woman or 56 if I'm a man? If you ate only broccoli for a day, not that you would do this, but let's say you ate your breakfast and lunch and dinner, and all you ate was normal portion size, same number of calories, but it was nothing but broccoli. The meat eater might think, well, there's no protein in that. There might be chlorophyll and vitamins, but there's no protein. You would actually get 146 grams of pure protein wow. from eating nothing but broccoli. Next day, let's do lentils. 157 grams of protein if you, if you ate nothing but lentils with normal portions. So hopefully you're not doing that. Hopefully you're eating some broccoli and some lentils and other beans and some grains and so forth. Brown and rice. you add it up, brown rice, you add it up, you get all the protein you need. Think of, think of your foods like, like air. Nobody ever asks, where do you get your oxygen? Now, oxygen is not the main part of air. You know, there's, there's nitrogen, there's carbon dioxide, and you just get oxygen as part of it. And takes care of itself. It takes care of itself. There's protein in plant foods and it takes care of itself. And you can be an elite athlete. You're eating lots of food because you're hungry, because you're burning a lot of calories and the protein comes along with it. And outside of protein, what are some of the other common questions uh, are patients asking you about calcium because they associate that with milk perhaps? Are they asking about vitamin B12. Calcium is, is a biggie um, because we tend to associate it with milk, but it's important to understand that cows don't make calcium. Cal calcium is an element in the earth and it passes into the roots of grass and other plants. And so the cow eats the, the grass and gets the calcium from that source and it gets into the milk and you only absorb 
from a glass of milk about 32% of its calcium. The rest just goes right through your body and it doesn't get past your digestive tract wall. If you ate the green vegetables directly, hopefully not grass, but broccoli or kale or collards or Brussels sprouts or green vegetables, you're getting calcium in its original source. Just like the cow gets it from green vegetables and that's its source. Now it's not only in green vegetables, although that's a great source. It's also in beans and many other foods, but I would... Tahini, sesame seeds. Lots and lots of foods, but I, I would encourage people to keep green vegetables front and center and make them part of your routine. Okay, and B12? Uh, B12 is interesting. You need it for healthy nerves. You need it for healthy blood. And it's not made by animals or plants. It's actually made by bacteria. And prior to the advent of modern hygiene, at least the theory goes, that the bacteria in the soil or on our, our, the plants that we would pluck out of the soil, the bacteria on our hands or in our mouths would produce the 2.4 micrograms of B12 that you need. And I'm not sure if, if that's true or not, but modern hygiene has completely eliminated that source. Uh, meat eaters will get some B12 typically because in a cow's intestinal tract, the B12 is produced. Uh, the same is true in your intestinal tract, but it does not look like people absorb their own B12. It's a, probably produced too low. At least that's the idea. So I recommend that people supplement and every multiple vitamin you ever took has B12 in it. It's in a lot of fortified foods also, but you might not be eating those. So I think people should go to the health food store or the drug store, any pharmacy, and just get a B12 supplement, the lowest dose and, and take it. And, and by the way, that's true for vegans, but it's true for, for meat eaters too. A lot of meat eaters are low in B12. Um, they don't absorb it very well, or they've got, they're on medications that interfere with it. Okay. And I just thought of a question. I want to loop back to your earlier comments around oil. And I think some of the listeners have probably or no doubt read about the Mediterranean diet, right, which has been, I guess, heralded as a diet that is heart healthy and it contains um, olive oil within it. Is is olive oil responsible for, for that diet being healthy? And the second point to that question is, should everyone be trying to cook without oil? Or is this more specific for people who are overweight or have chronic disease? The Mediterranean diet is better than whatever you were eating before. Probably if you were eating a meaty diet, the Mediterranean diet says, emphasize vegetables, emphasize fruits, make them front and center and have grain products. Spaghetti, you know, this is part of a Mediterranean diet. Less meat, have a glass of wine is another part that people like to talk about. And they like to say olive oil. Ansel Keys from the University of Minnesota coined the term Mediterranean diet, and he was looking at Southern Italy in particular, and the idea was not an oily diet. The idea was that if you're going to use oil in cooking or, or uh, as a topping, that instead of butter, you would use olive oil, as opposed to more Northern areas, where it was more of a creamy uh, diet. And this has morphed over time to people thinking you should be adding lots of oil to things and add lots of olive oil. And that will interfere with weight loss and cause all kinds of issues. So I think, frankly, if a person goes from an omnivorous diet to a Mediterranean type of diet, that's a good switch. But if they go further and and have it be entirely plant-based and throw out the added oil, they're going to do better still. Okay. And if you're speaking, I guess, to parents who are cooking for their kids, right? Do you do encourage completely oil-free cooking, even even for, for people that haven't don't have a, a diagnosable pathology yet? Sure. There are natural oils in in foods anyway. So if a child eats 
as I mentioned earlier, if they're eating green vegetables, they're getting traces of oil. If they're eating beans, there are traces of oil. Even in fruits, there are natural traces. There's not a lot. Uh, if they're having some nuts or seeds, they're getting substantially more and they're getting the oils their body needs. There is no need to add oil to it. I have to say, in practice, where I've been most worried is a person who's trying to lose weight or a person who's trying to reverse their diabetes or heart disease. That's a person where I'm pretty strict with oil. If you're thin, thin and healthy, I'm not all that freaked out if there's a little bit of oil on your pasta at a restaurant or something like that. But I have to say, it's good for people to learn how to just not cook with that and not to add it. And your, your tastes will, will change and you'll, you'll see that it makes sense. Okay, so I think a nice way to sort of close out this conversation is to perhaps look at the education component a little bit more for maybe practitioners who are listening and people that are, you know, receiving questions from patients after they're encouraging them to eat more plants. Do you find on the whole that the patients that you're seeing clinically are skeptical or resistant to changing their diet? Of course. Everyone is resistant to change and everyone is skeptical, but that doesn't mean they're not going to succeed. They are going to succeed. Nobody ever wanted to start an exercise program. They, they wished that they were exercising, but they're lacing up their sneakers thinking, I don't know if I really want to do this. No smoker ever really wanted to quit smoking. They wanted to keep smoking if it just wouldn't kill them. Um, so with, when it comes to diet changes, everyone's nervous, everyone's reluctant. The thing to do as a practitioner is not get daunted by that. You just accept that. And then you guide the patient because they want to be healthy. And so we work with them. And like a coach who believes in the patient, the coach believes in an athlete and you believe in your patient. So, so what we'll do is we'll bring people together. Uh, the doctor's job in, in our medical center in Washington, D.C., the doctor's job is to validate the role of a diet. Diet changes and explain to the patient how it works. Then we have registered dietitians who, who walk through it in detail with the patient and their reluctant spouse. And, and they're all kind of nervous and skeptical. And then we refer them to groups. And what you see is over time, they start to understand how foods affect them. And they're like a kid who arrived at the swimming pool thinking, I want to stick my toe in that water and just and just see what it's like. And then eventually they do, they want to jump in. And so the way we do it is we'll say, all right, here's why a, a, a vegan diet or a plant-based diet, whatever word you want to use, is good. And let's take a week. Let's not start the diet today. Let's take about a week. And during this week, let's think of the foods that you might like to have for breakfast or lunch or dinner or snacks that have no animal products in them. And make a list. So the patient goes home and they're making a list of here's some breakfasts I could have. Uh, here's a lunch I could have. Here's dinners I could have. Here, here's a restaurant that actually has vegan things. You know, it might be a typical Italian restaurant. They got millions of them. Or Chinese or uh, Latin American cuisine. Or they go to the sushi bar and they have the veggie sushi instead of the, whatever. They come back at seven days later. They got their whole list. Now the doctor says, let's eat those foods that you picked out. For the next 21 days, three weeks, all vegan all the time, but it's the foods you like. Hey, okay, easy. I can do anything for three weeks and these are the foods I like. So they eat it and three weeks goes by. Physically, they are changing. They're losing weight. They're feeling better. If they got diabetes, their blood sugar is starting to fall. Their digestion is finally sorted out. They're, they're awake. They're feeling good. They're sleeping better at night and they're, they're not having that mid-afternoon like slump that comes from having a high saturated fat diet. But the other thing, is their attitudes about foods and their taste for foods are changing too. And they, they didn't expect that because you didn't try to talk them out of skepticism. You're just 
letting them experience it for themselves. And they discovered products and websites and movies and books and somebody at work is doing the same thing. And after three weeks, they just think, give me another week, doc. Can I do this for another week? Of course. And then it becomes a habit. It's like a smoker. It's tough to quit smoking. I say as one who did this (laughs) at the end of residency, I quit smoking, went vegan the same year. Once you get three weeks out where you haven't had a cigarette, you couldn't pay the person to go back. And when a person has had diabetes, they have heart disease, and finally you've given them an answer and they see the light at the end of the tunnel. They're not there yet, but they're, they're seeing it and they're losing weight and they're feeling better. You couldn't pay them to go back and have a cheeseburger. Now, once in a while, a person can goof up. Don't worry. Uh, that happens to smokers and alcoholics. And everybody, they goof up. You just say, let's dust ourselves off. Let's get back on the wagon and, and people will succeed and they will do well. And is there, is there anything that practitioners, physicians listening should be wary about in terms of when you change someone's diets, the effect that that may have on their requirement for pharmaceutical medications? Oh, yes. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. If the patient has diabetes treated with insulin, you have to be ready to bring their insulin doses down and do it very promptly because a a, a vegan diet, a plant-based diet is not your grandmother's diet. I mean, this is a powerful approach and it will lower their blood sugar. And if they are also on powerful drugs, their blood sugar can get too low. They'll be shaking, they'll be sweating, they'll feel nervous, they'll feel hungry. These are signs of low blood sugar and it can be dangerous. So the doctor has to keep in touch with the patient when they're starting this powerful diet and has to start backing them off their drugs. Same is true with uh, medications for blood pressure. You're losing weight, your blood pressure is coming down. Uh, That's usually more gradual than the change in blood sugar. But one day the patient stands up from a table and they're all woozy because they're on four, di- four, four medications for their blood pressure and they, they, their doses were never modified and their blood pressure is now too low. So doctors have to be aware of all, all of these things and they have to stay in touch with the patient. Okay, that's some, some good advice there. For, what about for patients who, who are perhaps overly skeptical and they say, Dr. Barnard, we are clearly omnivores or even we're clearly carnivores. How do you, how do you answer that? Wait for your cat to yawn and look at those razor blades that your cat uses to, I'm talking about your cat's teeth. They're there to, to, to kill prey, to kill a mouse or a squirrel. Also, they're designed to be able to rip the hide off and to then rip the muscles off the skeleton. Now, now stumble into your bathroom, turn on the light, open your mouth and look in the mirror. And what you discover is that your canine teeth are no longer than your incisors. And that change occurred at least three and a half million years ago. You have the dentition of an herbivore. You have the intestinal tract of an herbivore. It's much longer than that of a carnivore. We don't have claws. And we, we also, people don't even have the inclination to kill animals. We do, we, we learn it. But a cat instinctively wants to kill a mouse, wants to kill a rabbit. Um, a little baby wants to play with them. You know, but they can, they, they, in fact, the baby's in a high chair and the baby takes to apple slices and fruits. And when well-meaning parents get the idea that a child needs more protein and they put a little meat in their diet, the parents listening to this know what I'm talking about. You put meat in your, in your baby's mouth, the baby spits it out and you put it back and the baby spits it out again. And eventually you're going to win that battle. And now the baby starts to think, okay, I guess I should be eating Getting this. Conditioned. They get conditioned to it. And then pretty soon they're a 55-year-old guy on the exam table with a high cholesterol level and overweight and diabetes or colorectal cancer, all these problems that come from these diet 
dietary missteps. So no, we are not carnivores. We have never been carnivores. We are in the class of great apes who are primarily uh, herbivores. I mean, gorillas are not eating cheese sandwiches and steak and these kinds of things. There was another example that you mentioned today. Was it the box test? <laughs> yes. Um, you take a box <laughs> and you root around. If the box had a laptop or a camera or some kind of electronics in it, you root around in the box. And what you find at the bottom of it is uh, a little packet of silica gel, and it's there to keep it dry. And on every packet of silica gel, the manufacturers print three words, do not eat. And I must say, I have taken this as an indication that this company is very wise. They know that human beings, we, we may be naturally herbivores, but we will put any darn thing in our mouths and they specifically tell us not to. And that is the case. People know that cigarettes are not healthy for them. In the mouth it goes, they're, we're college sophomores and it's Saturday night and we will get as drunk as we possibly can. A new kind of candy comes out, a new this, a new that. It all goes in the mouth. And that was okay a million years ago when people hadn't really figured out about killing animals and eating them. That wasn't, it, it was a real challenge. It was difficult, but fruit was abundant. So an impulse to stick stuff in our mouths wouldn't get us into trouble. But now that these products are as close as the corner store, we get in trouble. Well, Dr. Barnard, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You're, you're an absolute wealth of knowledge. And I'm sure I'll hopefully have you back on in the future to talk about other topics of, of interest. If anyone listening wants to find more resources or, or wants to, to see the work you're doing, the studies or read about PCRM, where, where can they go? Where should you direct them? Well, thank you. Our, our website is pcrm.org. And if you look on the, any of the online sites, you'll see our books and all kinds of stuff. Uh, we have a couple of things I might also mention. We have a kickstart program. It's free. Every day for three weeks, you get menus and recipes and videos. And we started it for clinic patients because they needed guidance and they needed support every day. But what we found, we've had about 600,000 people have used it. And they're not our patients. It's just people in day-to-day -day life using it. It's fun. For any clinicians, go to nutritioncme.org. That's Nutrition Continuing Medical Education, Nutrition CME. It's free. And there's we're not selling any product or any particular food but it will give clinicians the information that they need to, to hopefully help their patients. And let me say a word of thank you to you. In a, any given day, a doctor might see 20 patients, you might impact them, but any given podcast that you have reaches a whole lot more people than that. And you don't know who all you're going to intrigue and whose life you're going to save, but I guarantee you, you're going to save many. Well, um, thank you very much. I just feel super humbled to, to have had this conversation, to share space with you and, and learn from you. And I'm sure that the, the guests um, equally have learned so much. Now, I'm going to let you go because you need to get back over to the conference and you're a popular man. But how long are you are you here for in in Melbourne? What's your You've got a little bit of a, a tour on, right, at the moment? Um, going over to New Zealand uh, in a day or so and going to Wellington and Auckland. And then uh, got some other things after that. So um, hopefully we're going to spread a good word. Okay, great. I look forward to catching up again soon. Likewise. Thank you. Cheers. Wow, there we go, friends. What what a wealth of knowledge Dr. Neil Barnard is, one of the pioneers of lifestyle medicine. I feel incredibly lucky to have had the opportunity just to share space with him, let alone to have 
carried out that podcast and I really hope I can get him back on the show in the future. If you're interested in learning a little bit more and you want to read a little bit more about some of the science we discussed, please see the show notes. I've put some links to some studies on type 2 diabetes and a plant-based diet in particular. And folks, don't forget the Plant Proof Challenge. How many unique plants can you eat this week? I want you to upload your progress or any meals that you're having and tag hashtag plantproof40 so I can see how you're tracking. And lastly, if you're enjoying the podcast and haven't left a review on iTunes, please jump over and leave one. It only takes a couple of minutes and helps the show become more discoverable. So it would be greatly appreciated. All right, friends, I'll see you in the next episode. Peace.